The Bible reading for this morning is from John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. You can find it on page 1637 of the Pew Bible if you would like to follow along. While you're flipping there, I note that this is kind of in the middle of a section. So if you were with us prior to Christmas, uh, this is immediately following Mary pouring the perfume on Jesus' feet. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews had found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. morning. Hey, my name is Adam. Uh, I am one of the pastors here. Before we dive into the message this morning, uh, there's going to be a quick video. We want to tell you about an event that's coming up called the Amazing Chemistry Show. And I guess we'll just run the video and then I'll tell you a little more about it. So uh, we have this event coming up here in, uh, in February called the Amazing Chemistry Show. So what's going to happen is there's going to be a couple hours worth where the gym is going to be set up with all sorts of cool chemistry experiments for kids or just curious people. Um, and, uh, and then after that, two hour, there's a kind of a two-hour time frame where people can just kind of filter through and try different stuff and whatever. And then in here for an hour, there will be a show that this guy will put on, a, a chemistry show. And in the midst of that show, he's going to share the gospel and talk about uh, the integration of God and science in our world. It's going to be a really amazing evangelistic opportunity. 
um, for our church. And so um, that is, it's on February 17th, and I want to tell you about it for a couple reasons. The first is I, I, we'd really love for you to invite as many people as possible. We're hoping we're going to have five to 800 people coming through High Point, and we hope that a lot of those people are not going to be our people. They're going to be like your friends or your kids' friends or your kids' grandparents or people who maybe don't know the Lord but who and wouldn't necessarily step into a church, but They'll go with their kid to do some amazing chemistry, cool stuff, and see some, there's going to be fire on the stage. It's going to be, I mean, it's like Nick's dream, you know? And so, um, I think that's how Gwen pitched it to him. And so, <laughs> and so um, we'd love for you to invite the community, whether it's neighbors of yours or friends or your kid's friends or... Um, uh, the second thing, we need, uh, we need a lot of volunteers to pull this off. And so we'd love to, if you don't have children, whether like, or we would love for you to serve at this event. We would love for, for anyone with kids to be able to come and bring their kids and bring their kids' friends and bring their kids' friends' families and all of that so they would come and hear the gospel. And so if that, if you don't have kids who would want to come to this sort of thing, we would love for you to, to volunteer as a way to bring the gospel to the, the whole Madison area, the whole Madison community. Um, yeah, our goal is, is 500 to 800 people. There's going to be a clear gospel presentation. The family experience in the gym is from 2 to 4. Then from 4 to 5, the show will be in here. Um, there's a QR code at the serve booth that you can sign up on. You can sign up online to either to serve, uh, to serve or also you can send people that, that link um, to tell them more about it. We'd really love, this is a great opportunity for our church to invest in and, and get the gospel into the minds and hearts of modern Madisonians who care about science and who aren't going to come to church on a Sunday morning, right? Um, so I'd love to, love to invite you to that um, and be a part of that. Now, let's, let's dive in. Um, we're going we're gonna to preach a sermon on, I'm going to preach a sermon today on peace, which is sort of ironic because I have three kids under three at home and we've had people in our house for like three weeks, which have been wonderful people. But like peace is not something I've experienced a lot of lately. And so um, we, have a, we have a one month old at home. And so um, the idea of peace is really elusive. I'm reading this book right now by my favorite, favorite Roman historian. Um, his name is Tom Holland. And the book is called Pax. Pax is the Latin word Never. Yeah, Pax is the Latin word for peace. And um, the book is all about this period in Roman history called the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. And uh, it, this, uh, it is the idea that in the dominance of the Roman Empire in the Mediterranean world in the first couple centuries AD, uh, that because of the dominance of Rome, it created peace throughout the Roman Empire. So that you go basically anywhere in the Roman Empire and not be afraid for your life. At least not because there weren't going to be major battles or war or hostility going on. Now, right, because there was peace. Now, there wasn't perfect peace in the Pax Romana, uh, if you know anything about Roman history. But traditionally, I mean, there, has, there was a, an inordinate amount of not fighting going on in the Roman Empire at the time, especially if you weren't just like right on the fringes. And traditionally, historians have understood this piece in many ways to be the cradle of civilization. Like, it, the, this piece is the thing that allowed Rome to do what it did, to build the roads that it did, and the culture it did, and the art that it did. And like, like all of that stuff came because the people weren't fighting or trying to survive for their lives. Um, 
And this piece, this Pax Romana, is one of the things that contemporary Romans were the most proud of in their society. Like it was, in, in their mind, it was the thing that separated them from all the other societies. They had created this piece. And later emperors, like in the, the second and third century, these later emperors, their whole goal was to just maintain the Pax Romana. Like that was what was going to bring them the most fame and glory and admiration from the Roman people. And as this broke down, this is what, as, as this piece broke down later in Rome, I mean, that was, that was the travesty of the Roman um, collapse for the Roman people. But the ambition for peace is not a distinct one to the Romans, right? Nearly every human society and most individuals want peace, right? But, but peace is elusive. The Romans knew that, we know that, at almost every level of society from the nation state all the way down to like our family and friends, the norm is not peace, it's the opposite. It's division and strife and hatred and war and fighting and discord. And you can look at our news to see that. Many of you can probably look at your like Christmas dinner table and see that. Um, many, right, you can watch your kids interact with each other for 10 minutes and see that, that like peace is not the norm. And the question of how to achieve peace personally and society, societally has confounded human beings forever. And they've tr we've tried all sorts of things. And in our passage today, Jesus addresses this exact issue. Right? Uh, he arrives in Jerusalem and he adds the king of peace. And he bids everyone there, and you and I too, to welcome him as the King of Peace. But as, as has often been true as we've worked our way through the book of John, if you've been around, um, you know that, uh, that what Jesus means when he says the King of Peace is more difficult to understand than meets the eye. And John is doing everything he can literarily to try to help us understand what this means. And so in John 12, John recalls three claims about the identity of Jesus that are going to help us understand exactly who he is and what we can do to welcome him as the king of peace. Okay, so first, yeah, first, Jesus is the Messiah. So at both ends of this passage, this passage is kind of interesting, it's like a funnel. If you look at verses, uh, what is it, verses 9 to 11, and then you look at verses 17 to 19. You'll see they're both about Jesus and what he did with Lazarus. And they're, they're forming kind of a parenthesis around the stuff in the middle. They're pointing towards the stuff in the middle. It's kind of funneling everything towards there. And so um, at both ends of the passage, John tells us that people were flocking to Jesus at this point, not only because of who Jesus was and what he had been teaching, but because of the, of the story that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, that that information was getting out. Now, for us, for you, that may feel like a long time ago. Nick preached on that like between four and six weeks ago. Um, and there was a holiday in there. But John doesn't exactly specify how long after the event that that event that Jesus is entering Jerusalem that we're in our passage today, but it's not very long. So Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. No one had actually seen Jesus since that event, because after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it says he, he went into the, into the wilderness for a while, and then he came back to Bethany. The, pa the passage we preached on, uh, that Nick preached on a couple weeks ago, was that Jesus came back to Bethany, and uh, his feet were anointed with, um, with perfume. 
But he had gotten so popular, he couldn't move around the city centers. And so the pa- this passage was right before, and Jesus had come back to Bethany. He'd raised Lazarus from the dead. By that point, all the mourners who had been at Lazarus' tomb had been talking about this. That Jesus guy, Jesus guy, Jesus had raised someone from the dead. Many of those were likely from Jerusalem, and so the word had spread into Jerusalem, and a whole bunch of pilgrims at this time were flooding into Jerusalem. The city was swelling at least two or three times as big. One, one historian says that there were two and, a, two and a half million people in Jerusalem during the Passover festival that was about to happen. Even if that's an exaggeration, that's a huge, huge number of people there. And as Jerusalem swelled, um, the story about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead started to spread, both with locals, but also with out-of-towners. Some of those out-of-towners were from Nazareth, where, where Jesus had been doing his ministry, and they were familiar with Jesus. And so this buzz starts to kind of hum. There's like this undercurrent going on as the people are pouring into the city. And then word breaks that this celebrity has come back from Bethany— or come back to Bethany, which is less than two miles from Jerusalem. The last time he was there, he, he, wrote, he made someone rise from the dead. It's only a 30-minute walk. And so there's all these people who are basically on vacation who have come to Jerusalem, and they start going, well, we better go see this guy. And they start to flock out to see Jesus and flock out to see Lazarus to see, was this guy, is this guy actually really alive still? And when they do that, they realize the reports are true. And a lot of them start to believe in Jesus. So many said the Jewish leaders can say in verse 19, the whole world is going after him. And they were specifically believing, they were, they were believing something specific about Jesus. That is, that he was the long-awaited for Messiah. All right? Pharisaical Judaism believed that in the last day, a Messiah would come down from God and would raise all the dead. In fact, when, G, when that was Martha's initial response. When Jesus initially told Martha, Lazarus' brother, your brother is going to rise from the dead. Her response is, I know he's going to rise from the dead on the last day. Right? Because that was like kind of the general understanding. There's going to be this resurrection on the last day. We don't have to worry about death so much. The mainstream religious belief was that there was going to be a great resurrection on the last day. And that day when God finally restored a son of David to the throne. And then Jesus responds in that passage, I am the resurrection and the life. Believe in me. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Right? Which is something the Messiah is going to do. He's going to raise—the Messiah is going to raise people from the dead. It doesn't, ha- that doesn't just happen, right? And all these pilgrims in Jerusalem who've come as devout pilgrims to celebrate what God has done in the past and what they believe God's going to do in the future, they start hearing that this guy, Jesus, raised someone from the dead, and they go out to see Jesus, and the guy he supposedly raised from the dead is there, and he's alive and breathing and walking around, and they start to believe. So much so that the Jewish leaders realize that now if they're going to squash this whole Jesus thing, they have to not only kill Jesus, they've also got to kill Lazarus. Because he's the evidence that Jesus is something special, that he's the Messiah. But here's the problem. As we've seen over and over again in the book of John, the people's concept of who the Messiah is and what he will do is disconnected from the living, breathing Messiah. When they think about the Messiah, they have a very specific image in their head of what he's going to do. And it's incongruent with who Jesus actually is and what he's going to do. So it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like telling someone who's only ever seen their 10-year-old play the trumpet that you're going to go to a concert to see Miles Davis. You know, it's like, right, both the nephew and Miles Davis are trumpeters, right? They both like, and there's some similarities, right? There's a brass horn, it makes some noise, you move the little valve slides to make it make different noises. But like, I don't know 
there's band, High Point Christian School has band practice in here a couple times a week. And I, my office is just right over there. And uh, I don't know the last time you heard a, a 10, 11, 12 year old play the trumpet. It's not great, you know? It's like they've tried really hard, which is, which is cute. Um, but it's not great. And it's like, if you, if all your experience with the trumpet was listening to a 10 year old play the trumpet, Right? It's like, it's the same thing as that Miles Davis is doing. But it's not really the same thing, is it? You know, it's like not really the same thing. Like, if you were going to describe it to someone who'd only ever heard a 10-year-old play the trumpet, and you were going to describe what Miles Davis does in playing the trumpet, or did, I know he's, I know he's dead, but if you were going to describe what Miles Davis did playing the trumpet, like, it might not even benefit you to use the word trumpet. Right? Because it's, it's the same thing, but it's not the same thing at all. It's so different. And that's what Jesus is dealing with, right? He's like, like Jesus is the Messiah. And the people, they like, they know what the Messiah is, but because it's so different than what the Messiah, than what Jesus is actually trying to convey, he's like, I can't even, I, like, like earlier on, he can't even really use the word Messiah to convey what he means. These people have drummed up in their mind this concept. It's so singular and so distracted from the actual thing Jesus is talking about. He doesn't even want to use the word. And so we see, and we, we're about to see exactly what their concept of the Messiah is, right? And there's these sort of dueling prophecies that happen in the next passage, right? Because Jesus then comes into Jerusalem. He leaves Bethany and he walks into Jerusalem and the people declare him to be the king, right? Um, Look with me at verses 12 and 13. This is what it says. The next day, the great crowd who had come for the festival, that is the Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Okay, so hordes of people who are in Jerusalem the next day, some of whom had probably come out to Bethany the day before. They had seen Jesus. They had seen Lazarus. They go back. Some of who had heard the accounts. They'd from those who had gone out the day before, some of whom just heard the initial account, right, and of Lazarus being raised from the dead, and they hear that Jesus is on the road from Bethany to Jerusalem. And so they go out to greet him. And like, this is the moment. God's Messiah, who's raising people from the dead, has come into God's city right before the day the whole nation celebrates God's salvation and exodus from slavery. And, and these are people who, are, who feel like they're enslaved to Rome. And so they go out with palm branches, which were at the, but at, by this time, palm branches were the national um, symbol for Israel. And if you were here a couple weeks ago when Nick talked about Hanukkah and Judas Maccabeus and this big revolt that happened around AD or around BC 160, one of the things that, um, when Judas Maccabeus, which means Judas the Hammer, drove out the oppressive Syrian forces from Jerusalem in 160 BC, so a couple hundred years before, the people came out with palm branches to, to welcome him into the city. That's the last time a Messiah had come deliver them, to deliver them, and, he waved, and they waved palm branches. And so they're doing it again. Jesus is coming to the city. They're like, this is it. They're waving palm branches. They start singing this psalm from Psalm, uh, from psalm 118. Psalm 118 was understood at the time to be a messianic psalm. In fact, with a Jewish commentary on Psalm 118 specifically understood that the one who comes is the Messiah. So the one who's referred to in Psalm 118 is the Messiah who's coming. And at first glance, that line, the line that the crowd quotes, looks like it's simply a blessing on someone coming from Jerusalem 
or coming into Jerusalem, right? Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel, right? Nothing wrong with that. That seems normal. But if you read the rest of the psalm, one of the things you see is that throughout Psalm 118, there's a heavy use of military language built into it, right? So I won't read the whole thing to you, but but listen to a few of these verses. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. That is like the people of Israel. Cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back. I was about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. And then a few verses later, right, he, the psalmist tells us, how God is the salvation for the people of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? This Messiah is going to come and save them. He's going to, like, he's going to consume them as quickly as burning thorns. He's going to cut them all down. All these people who are oppressing the people of Israel. And so these people have come out not only to see Jesus, but to proclaim him the king of Israel. That king of Israel, like the military king of Israel who's going to come and, and um, who's sent to oppress people to be their strength and defense and salvation, just like King David was so long ago, right? Like, can you imagine you're sitting in the city, the city is swelling with people, there's this huge religious festival going on, people, and then they start going out, like, this is how rebellions start. This is how insurrections start, Right? You get a crowd of people, they're starting to riot, they're rallying around a leader, they're declaring him the military king. They're like, I mean, people are ready to fight. Right? And they're right about the fact that Jesus is the king. They're right about that, but they're wrong about the sort of king he is. And then in the next verses, Jesus tries to correct them through his actions, right? Because he, Jesus is the king of peace. In some sense, what the Jews were hoping for was peace. Like there was some sense in which peace is what they were after. By that, they meant political freedom and protection. Their hope from the Messiah was that he was was going to usher in a new period of an everlasting period of peace. Like the peace that King David and King Solomon ushered in and presided over in the golden age of Israel's history. It was going to be a political peace. And in many ways, the word peace, though it never occurs in Psalm 118, that's what the whole Psalm is about. It's about how God is going to bring peace to his people. They should praise him for it. And that's not bad. In fact, that is what most societies and nations strive for in many ways. That sort of peace. Even the Romans, as they're conquering huge swaths of the Mediterranean world, the ancient world, they themselves were doing it in the name of peace. They were creating the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, right? Like that's, that's what they were doing. This isn't a novel idea. This is how the world works. If you want peace, you have to fight for it. It's not the natural state of the world. The world is always moving towards entropy. Peace is not the natural state of things. And so if you want peace, you've got to fight for it. The normative way through all of human history to create peace is to fight for it. The Pax Romana was created by Roman centurions going out to war every spring and conquering more land and massacring more people and committing more genocide. And then it was created by rival Roman leaders pitting their massive armies against each other and slicing each other into bits until one side broke. Like, And then you got the peace of Rome. Peace so that they could build roads and culture and wealth and philosophies and art and engineering feats and all the things the Romans are known for. All the things that in many ways set the stage for Western civilization as a whole, even today. 
All the things you can't do when you're fighting or surviving other people fighting around you. So when these first century Jews realize that Jesus is going to bring peace to Israel again, they grab their swords. Everyone knows if you want peace, you've got to fight for it. That's how you get peace. That's how you establish it. Even King David, the new Messiah, who's going to be a model for this, or who's a model for this new Messiah, he had to fight for peace. Here's the problem, though. Even though everyone knows that if you want peace, you've got to fight for it, everyone also kind of knows that any sort of peace you have to fight for isn't real peace. Right? Like the problem, it's not lasting peace. It's not real. Everyone then and everyone now knows that the Pax Romana was never going to last into perpetuity. And even if it did last, it wasn't really peace. It was just empire. It was just domination. It was just one, one player being strong enough that the other players wouldn't attack, you know? So that there would be a cessation of war, but it's not real peace. Like you can see the Jewish people wanted to revolt. They're ready to revolt. It looks like peace, but in reality, it's just a cessation of fighting because the power dynamic is sufficiently great and the conditions are sufficiently not terrible enough for the masses to rebel. But at some point, that's going to break down and there's not going to be peace anymore. And it did consistently over and over and over and over again. And that's happened in human history since the time of the Romans, since before the time of the Romans, since the time of the Romans, and continues today. It looks like peace but it's not real. It's not actually peace. And so Jesus has this different way. He has a different concept of what he's doing. He's the king who's going to bring peace. Yes. But he isn't, he's also the king who isn't going to bring about that by fighting. He's, he's the king who's going to bring peace by peace. And nobody in Jerusalem seemed to understand that. Because they didn't have a category for this. And Jesus, Jesus couldn't really explain it in a way that they could hear. And Jesus, as is so many times is true in the book of John, makes the medium his message. Um, all right. All right. Right? And so, so if you look at verses 14 and 15, this is what Jesus does. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on the colts, on the, on the donkey's colt. Okay, so the first thing to notice, of course, is that Jesus is riding a donkey and not a war horse. And that's sort of the point. Jesus comes in on a donkey. Donkeys are not dominating animals. If you're coming to like lead a rebellion, you probably want a more powerful thing than that that you're riding on, right? And so... If he, you know, if he was going to bring peace like the Romans brought peace, he'd be riding a great stallion, a symbol of power as he came into Jerusalem. And so the very act itself of riding a donkey is an object lesson pointing to the reality that he's not Judas Maccabeus, Judas the hammer, coming to deliver a military victory to Israel. He's not kicking off a nationalistic insurrection. He isn't gathering people to get their swords together and achieve peace by fighting off the Romans. He comes humble, lowly, and gently riding on a donkey. But if the act itself wasn't clear enough, a clear enough indication of the sort of peaceful king he was, the whole episode is meant to bring to mind a prophecy that John quotes here in Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
And it's another prophecy, like Psalm 118, of the coming of the Messiah, right? Where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. Right? But in the original context, this prophecy, right, what follows this prophecy, this is verse 9, Zechariah 9.9. In Zechariah 9.10, the next verse, this is what it says. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Right, so when Jesus comes riding in on this donkey, it, this is the passage that's supposed to correct the people's understanding of Jesus. He, he's going to proclaim peace. He's going to take away the war horses and break the battle bows. In other words, there's, it's going to be the sort of peace where you don't need that stuff anymore. You don't need those weapons anymore, right? Not the kind of Roman peace. Right? The Roman peace, in the, in the Pax Romana, the Roman uh, defense budget grew every year, right? There were more and more and more centurions as the, the longer the peace went on. But no, Jesus is creating a peace that is so stable that you don't need a force of arms to protect it. You don't need traditional power to protect it. Jesus isn't just the king who brings peace. He's also the king who comes in peace. He's the king who brings peace by means of peace. The, the king who can establish peace and will establish peace without lifting a sword. Right? And he's trying to—he's he's like, look, guys, like, you want to you wanna throw some prophecy into this? Let me throw some prophecy into this. Let me remind you what your scriptures say about this. And this—and let's remind you that— this peace is going to be proclaimed peace. This Messiah is going to proclaim peace to the nations. It's going to go from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, right? Like, it's not going to be just a nationalistic peace for Israel and the Jews. It's going to be this global peace. It's going to be something different, right? In what sense is, could that possibly be true if all the peace that Jesus is bringing is a nationalistic peace to the people of Israel that creates more enmity with Rome. But nobody gets it. Nobody understands it. The text says that even the disciples who'd been walking around, um, even the disciples who'd been walking around with Jesus for three years, listening to everything he said, did not understand all this. And it wasn't that, it wasn't until after Jesus was glorified, in other words, after his crucifixion, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, that they understood what was going on as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey that day, right? In fact, we know they didn't understand this because it's only like, like five or six days later, or four, no, I think four days later, after Jesus makes this big show, he's coming into the, as the king, coming in peace, some soldiers and priests come to arrest Jesus, and they're armed to the teeth. They're ready for a fight. They think there's going to be an insurrection, and then Jesus' top disciple, Peter, takes out a sword and he swings it at a guy. He's like, great, this is the moment we've all been waiting for, right? Here come the, here, you know, we're going to win. And he, he takes a shot at a guy's head and misses it and cuts off his ear. And Jesus turns to him and he says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Right? Like, even the disciples, even Peter, even the top disciples, like, they don't get it. They, they still think, even four days after this, they still think that Jesus is coming as a military leader to lead a nationalistic revolt and bring peace that way. 
but he's the king of peace. He's going to establish peace for his people, but it's going to be real peace. Peace that lasts, peace that is established not by fighting, but by the means of being peaceful. But even Peter, part of his inner circle, much less the rest of the disciples, much less the crowds in Jerusalem, just don't understand what's going on. Because it's really hard to understand. It's not the way, this is not the way the world normally works. John tells us that only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, that's one of those lines that, in the Bible that I think is really easy to just read over. It's like, oh yeah, 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 okay, so later they got it. You know, they didn't get it at first, but later they got it. But I think it's saying more than that. There was something about Jesus' glorification, right? his death, resurrection, and ascension. Um, there was something about this that created an interpretive lens through which this unworldly concept could finally make sense to them. Like they actually couldn't, they did not have the capacity to understand it beforehand. Because Jesus was doing more than simply bringing a nationalistic victory to the people of Israel. He was bringing victory over the root causes of division, hostility, war, and discord. And there's at least three to look at here. The first is that Jesus' glorification revealed that he had brought peace with God. The primary cause of any strife, it, whether that's interpersonal strife or, or kind of systemic-wide or society-wide, uh, nation-state strife, is that human beings don't have peace with God. The Passover festival that Jesus and all these Jews were going to Jerusalem to celebrate was the festival, was a celebration of the time when the Jews were slaves in Egypt, and God told his people to kill a lamb and wipe the blood over the doorposts, and whoever did that, the angel of death would pass over their house. Hence Passover. And whoever didn't, the firstborn of every son in that family was going to die. Because sin required a sacrifice. Sin required payment in blood. But God in his grace allowed his people to substitute the blood of a lamb instead of their own blood. And through this act, God set his people free from their slavery to the Egyptians. Jesus' glorification, his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven— at the festival of the Passover revealed that he was the true Passover lamb. The lamb who was slain to cover over the sins of every person who would believe in him. That his blood would be sufficient to pay for the sins of every human being who would utilize it and thus bring peace, bring an end to strife between that person and God. And that's true for you too. If you believe in Jesus, his glorification reveals that your sins are covered and that you are at peace with God. There's no longer hostility between you. God feels no ill will towards you because of what you've done. On the contrary, he loves you so much that he's provided a way for peace to come between you and him. Right? And that, that is the first step to, to realizing real peace in your life and in the world. There has to be peace with God. The, sec the second thing, though, is that Jesus' glorification revealed that God's salvation was for everyone. It revealed that Jesus was not simply a Jewish Messiah. He wasn't less than that, but he was more than that. He didn't come to save the people of Israel from Rome. He came to save everyone, Jews and Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. One of the primary drivers of conflict between people is scarcity. I, have, I mentioned I have a, um, some family in town right now. My nieces are in town, and I have a two-year-old. And, um, and so I see every day, that scarcity leads to conflict and hostility because my two-year-old is terrible at sharing because he wants the thing and there's only one book or there's only one toy, there's only one 
Mickey Mouse fire truck, and if he, and if, if his cousin has it, then he doesn't have it, right? And then he gets mad, and then there's fighting. And the only way to stop that fighting is for me to come in and be more powerful than him, and then make him share it, right? Right? But that's like, that's how much of life works. Like, that's how life works when you're two years old, but that, that's how life works when you're 20. That's how life works when you're 50, right? Like, there's all sorts of things that you, it, it's a zero-sum game, right? And that, that creates that strife and conflict and brokenness and division and hatred and, and on grander scales, war and battles but God's love and salvation is not scarce. It's not a zero-sum game. If God's Messiah were just for the salvation of Israel, the people outside of God's chosen people would still feel hostile and act hostile towards God's chosen people. But Jesus came in peace to extend God's salvation to the whole world, which was sort of the point from the very beginning in the Old Testament. But the, God's people had sort of forgotten about that. But then that gives us the ability and the motivation to love others and act with peace towards them. We don't have to hoard God's love and salvation for us. Even, even when people act as our enemies. We, Jesus himself did this. He told you to do this. We do this because he, we're thankful to him for it. And because you don't have to be worried about getting less just because other people get it too. Third, Jesus' glorification revealed that God would give his Holy Spirit to anyone who believed in him. Um, one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace. Because through the Spirit, God literally can change your heart. He can bring you inner peace in such a way that is not dependent on your circumstances. This is connected to the peace that he brings you between you and God. Right? It's the sort of peace that the Bible says surpasses understanding. Right? Just a couple chapters later, Jesus explicitly ties this together. In John 14, he says, The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all, these, all things and will remind you of everything I've said. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Right? When Jesus gives the Holy Spirit, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to give them the Holy Spirit, he also tells them he's going to give them peace. Because it is through the Holy Spirit that the peace comes. The Holy Spirit could not come until Jesus ascended into heaven, and therefore it was Jesus' glorification that led to the opportunity for anyone who believes in Jesus to experience real internal peace, to actually be free from fear and anxiety. By coming in peace, Jesus conquered the hostile intentions of the sin in the flesh, right? Like, so Jesus, Jesus brought peace between you and God. He brought peace in such a way that you could have peace with other people, but he also brought peace between you and you. Like the parts of you, the sin in the flesh, the parts of you that fight against the, the, uh, the good parts of you. Like, you know that, that part of you like you wish wasn't part of you. Jesus gives you, you peace. He can conquer the hostile intentions of sin and flesh in you and that wage war against your soul internally and create peace in place of it. And therefore, we should welcome the king of peace. Now, practically, this can mean all sorts of things. But I'm going to highlight just a few. First, it means living in the knowledge that you have peace with God through Jesus. So for some of you who have never placed your faith in Jesus— before, that means believing in him and surrendering your life to him for the first time. Or maybe kind of for the second time, but the first time you didn't really do it, you know? 
And you can do that today. If you haven't done that, I invite you to do that today. If you're not sure what that means, or you've got questions, or you're like, uh, I, I'm, still, I, I'm still kind of on the fence about that, any one of our pastors would love to talk to you about that, including me. And so please um, reach out. We'd love to talk to you about that. But for those of you who have already placed your faith in Jesus, it means living like you actually have peace with God. Right? I, I struggle with this so much, and so many Christians I talk to do. Right? So many Christians operate like God loves them, but he doesn't really like them. You know what I mean? Like, you don't really have peace with God. Like, in, in your current state with God, God's not actively fighting against you. But if you just mess up, you just kind of screw up a little bit, God's going to come attack you with his armies of angels. You know? He's going to get you. It's only a matter of time before you make a mistake and sin, and then God will unleash on you. But that's not true. You have peace with God. He's on your side, or rather you're on his side. He loves you. And so rather than living in fear of retribution from God, you can live in freedom and thankfulness. Second, welcoming the king of peace means allowing the Holy Spirit to bring peace to you internally. Inner terminal and anxiety are off the charts, societally speaking, right? Many of you struggle with this. But one of the reasons that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to you was to give you peace. And so if you're not experiencing that peace right now, one, one of the questions to ask is, what is stopping you from allowing the Holy Spirit to do that work in your life? It's a process. It's just like everything else in the Christian life. You're never, it, like, it's going to take time to work towards that, and you're never going to probably own it perfectly. But are you moving towards more internal peace, becoming a person of peace internally? And if not, what are the things that are stopping you? One of the best ways to figure that out, right, like, is, is in community with other people. And so if you're struggling with that, I encourage you to do one of two things. Either get plugged into a small group here, and you can sign up for one of those at the Welcome Center outside or, or online, um, and, and get plugged into a small group and get with some other Christians around around a table and talk about what, what is stopping you? What is the anxiety that you're having? What, is, what are you afraid of? What is causing you, to, you not to experience the peace of the Holy Spirit? And let those other Christians work with you and, and let God work through them in you to create that peace. The second is if, if you experience this really dramatically, and maybe even clinically, or, or you just, you have a lot of anxiety and you, um, I encourage you to join an Oaks group. Uh, Oaks is a ministry we have here for people who are struggling with these sorts of things. And so, um, and so you can sign up that, for that online as well. But find a community of people who can help you experience the peace of the Holy Spirit again. And then finally, welcoming the King of Peace means being a person of peace in your relationships with others, right? Once you realize that you have peace with God and that the Holy Spirit begins to work that peace internally in you, you, you can't, there's no hope for you to have peace with others without those two precursors, right? Like you've got you've to have peace with God and you've got to begin to let the Holy Spirit work in you to create peace in you. Thus, you can be able, be, become the kind of person that has peace in your relationships with others. Right? In other words, make, like Jesus, make the medium as much of your message as the words are. Right? So whether it's a spouse or a family member or a roommate or coworker or a friend or whoever else, Jesus is calling you to be the kind of person who brings peace to those around you. Whose spirit is so assured that God loves them 
that they don't have to win every argument. They don't have to play power politics. They don't have to fight all the time. And listen, we're going to need some people like that. It's, it's an election year again, right? This isn't going to get better. Our society's not going to get more peaceful over the next 10 months, right? It's going to get less. We are the people of Jesus. We are the people who belong to the King of Peace. We've got to be bringers of that peace to our society. And listen, sometimes that, like, that strategy will work. It will, that, that will, it will conquer society. It did conquer the Roman society, right? Like, like eventually the Ro- Rome broke down as a whole empire. And a, one, of the, one of the biggest reasons historians say Rome broke down as an empire is because it Christianized and it became more peaceful, which was problematic because it was all, the whole thing was built on military, right? That, that will be true in our society as well, right? We, our, peace will win out, but Jesus, Jesus brought peace, and he died for it, right? Like, it will bring suffering. It will not bring results and success in the way you think it will and in a worldly sense. But it will win over time. It will win out. And so it may lead to immense suffering. It did for Jesus. But the way our king brought peace, it must be the way we bring peace as well. And so critically, I think, um, so in addition to just being people of peace, who, who have an air of peace about them, who aren't going to fight over every little thing with everyone, who are going to just love people instead, in addition to that, I think critically, it also means being someone who invites others to know Jesus, the King of Peace, who wants them to experience peace with God and peace internally so that they could also become people of peace. Right? And so I encourage you this year, as we, as we launch into a new year, think about who are your friends and neighbors? Who are the people in your life, or family members, or who are the people in your life that this year you're going you're gonna to invite them to know Jesus, the King of Peace? You're going to invite them to experience peace. Right? Now, I think one great opportunity to do this is the Amazing Chemistry Show we ta- I talked about at the beginning. Right? Like, that is a very low-hanging fruit thing that's coming up in like a month that I encourage you to invite people to. But think about, too, in, the, in the, your own lives, in your own, sort of as you go about your daily life, and you think about the people who don't know Jesus, who are experiencing immense amounts of anxiety because they don't have peace with God, and they don't have peace inside of themselves. What can you do to be a person of peace that would bring them into the knowledge of Jesus, the King of Peace, so that they could experience that, too? Be a witness to the peace that Jesus has brought to you. Invite others to welcome Jesus, the King of Peace. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, um, that you would bring us peace. We desperately need it. We live in an anxious world that is afraid of all sorts of things. And God, we, we admit, we confess and admit that we're afraid of a lot of things. Lord, we, we don't have the peace that we wish we had, that we feel like we ought to have in you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us to continue to make us people of peace, people of greater peace. Lord, teach us, um, remind us of the peace that we have with you so that we can experience it more fully. I pray that you would give us peace internally 
so that whatever room we walk into, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in in our lives, that we could bring, that we could, we could have an air of peace, a peace that surpasses understanding about us. And then Lord, I pray that through that, that you would create peace in our relationships with other people. First, here in your church, that we would be a church that loves each other and has peace with one another, that bears one another's burdens and does all the things that, that we would go out of our way to work hard for peace amongst ourselves and also in, the, in our relationships with others, that we would be the family member that exudes peace, that brings peace into, the, into our household and into our workplace and into all the places we go. Lord, give us the courage to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.